Up now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherry Ann, and we are the hosts of Molotov Now on the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Today we have Roy on the podcast to talk about organizing the unhoused into a union here in Aberdeen. Roy, an organizer and activist with the Industrial Workers of the World and various mutual aid efforts around the region, has been assisting with the local efforts to fill a need that has been identified in the community. Through tireless organizing, deep observation, and countless meetings, these organizers are attempting to revive a culture of solidarity unionism through the effective unionization of those living on the streets. Roy has also written a zine that we will be producing an audio version of today all about this effort and its importance, entitled... Organizing the Unhoused, an organizer's manual. When we return, we will be back with our monthly Radical News Roundup. But for now, a message from our sponsor. People need ordering principles. Twelve Rules for What is a podcast about fascism and the far right from the perspective of the left. It's obviously great stuff, but don't take our word for it. Here is a word from our sponsor. I'm Jordan Peterson. Now that I have been injected with the anti-fascist super soldier serum, I renounce all my rubbish beliefs about hierarchies and the distribution of sex and dedicate my life, my soul, to the 12 rules for what podcast. So that's 12 rules for what? A podcast about the far right. Get it anyway, get your podcasts. 12 rules. Upcoming events in Aberdeen, save the date, May 1st, 2024, for the fourth annual May Day on the Harbor, located in Aberdeen, Washington, venue to be determined. In Bremerton, the first annual Kids Up Anarchist Book Fair will be taking place on May 4th. Be sure to save the date for the first annual Kids Up Anarchist Book Fair. In Seattle, there will be a panel discussion and book talk featuring Rattling the Cages, Oral Histories of North American Political Prisoners, a project of abolitionist Josh Davidson and political prisoner Eric King. On February 17th at 5.30 p.m. at the SU Law School, Sullivan Hall, 901 12th Avenue, room C5. Panel members include Josh Davidson and former political prisoners, Mark Cook and Janine Bertram. Also in Seattle, 
Left Bank Books will be hosting Volta, a queer trans BIPOC open mic, on the last Thursday of each month at 7.30. The upcoming dates are January 25th, February 29th, and March 28th. Masks required. Again in Seattle, there will be a mutual aid fair for Palestinian liberation on Sunday, February 11th from 1 to 5 p.m. at U Heights. Masks are required. There will be food and supplies, art and vendors, speakers, and performers. Mutual aid requests. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network could use some support. Cash App and Venmo at CR Mutual Aid Net. The support will go towards supplies and distro. Local news. Foreign company proposes polluting wood pellet plant in Hoquiam. Many factories these days take wood slash and turn it into pellets for fuel. This has become a growing industry over the last two decades. A proposed wood pellet plant in Hoquiam, Washington is slated to churn out more pellets than any other in the state thus far. The proposed facility, the second in the area after one already approved in Longview, would be among the first industrial-scale wood pellet manufacturers in the Pacific Northwest. The recent push into Washington by this industry comes after establishing itself in the American South, then obtaining a foothold in British Columbia, and comes on the heels of the industry's push for the use of wood as a renewable fuel instead of coal across the world. This is a serious threat to air quality in any place where these plants exist. No precedent has been set for the pollution generation of these types of plants, making the job of the ORCAA, the Olympic Regional Air Quality Agency, very difficult when considering approving this plant. On January 16th, the agency hosted a public hearing in Hoquiam for a proposal from a company called Pacific Northwest Renewable Energy, which is seeking approval to build and operate a pellet mill at 411 Moon Island Road in Hoquiam near the Port of Grace Harbor Terminal 3. The newsletter then goes on to detail how the company, Pacific Northwest Renewable Energy LLC, is actually a foreign limited liability company with its headquarters in Massachusetts, and it's owned by a company based in London. The newsletter also goes on to describe how insidious the plan to use wood as fuel is as an alternative to coal, saying from resilience.org, quote, it's not a magic trick, it's an accounting trick, and it's endorsed by international climate bodies like the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and written into the EU's Renewable Energy Directive. Consequently, signatories to the Paris Climate Agreement can classify woody biomass as carbon neutral, in effect pretending they are fixing the problem of climate change while they are actually making it worse. The scheme goes like this. When a forest is cut down in the US, it's considered a carbon debt. So, to avoid counting the debt twice, the pellets produced from that forest can be burned in, say, the UK, without emitting any CO2 at all, at least according to the carbon ledger sheet. The carbon was already supposedly emitted when the trees were cut down back in the US. When the forest is replanted, we have theoretically generated electricity using a carbon-neutral system. Unfortunately, all too often the forests are not replanted. And even when they are, it may take decades before the new trees are back to sequestering as much carbon as the ones that were cut down. The fact is, cutting down trees and burning them is not, as the pellet industry claims, fighting climate change, but rather accelerating it. Still, massive government subsidies are propelling manufacturers to aggressively expand production. End quote. Health metrics are among the worst in the state here in Grace Harbor. 
meaning that this plant would expose some of the poorest, most unhealthy people in the state to unknown levels of pollution and noise. Concerns have been raised by citizens, politicians, and local organizations. Sam Davis, a scientist with the environmental group Dogwood Alliance, did a study that examined the demographics of counties where these types of plants were located. Quote, We've looked at locations for all of the wood pellet mills and found that they were twice as likely to be located in environmental justice communities versus affluent white communities, Davis said in an interview. End quote. That means more often than not, pellet plants are located in black minority or poor counties. Compared to their state averages, more residents in these counties live in poverty, are unemployed, or receive SNAP benefits. Because pellet facilities release tons of pollutants into the air, they bring with them health risks for neighborhood residents. The gritty wood dust that settles on cars and outdoor furniture is something that locals complain about most often because it's the most visible discharge from the plant. But the air they are breathing also contains the witch's brew of other, far more dangerous pollutants. Quote, the pellet-making process can release carbon monoxide, nitrogenous gases, and other hazardous air pollutants, including things that are naturally in wood like formaldehyde and other volatile organic compounds, says environmental scientist Davis. End quote. Some of these chemicals can be toxic or carcinogenic, even in small amounts. Residents are also breathing in what scientists call PM2.5, pernicious dust so fine that it can lodge in the lungs and enter the bloodstream, aggregating asthma and causing heart attacks. On November 30th, after three amendments to the application, the ORCAA issued a preliminary decision to approve it. According to the ORCAA, primary sources of pollution at the pellet plant would come from burning woody debris for heat and dust created from wood processing. For each source, the agency requires emission control technologies that reduce the actual amount of pollutants that reach the air. Based on the plant's potential to emit a certain amount of chemicals like carbon dioxide and particulate matter, the agency considers it a major source of emissions, although the project emissions aren't high enough to require a pre-construction permit from the Washington Department of Ecology. But a group of environmental lawyers says that the company, PNWRE, may have significantly underestimated the hazardous pollutants it will spew into the air. On January 8th, two lawyers from the Southern Environmental Law Center sent a letter to the agency regarding the proposed plant in Hoquiam. Since 2017, the center has reviewed permits for more than 35 wood pellet plants in a dozen southern states. According to the center, it has compiled a database of emissions tests from the smokestacks of wood pellet plants. In its application, the company estimated the proposed plant will emit 1.3 tons of hazardous air pollutants each year, a projection the law center says is, quote, deeply flawed and based on incorrect or outdated emission factors, factors that are not specific to wood pellet plants, end quote. Recent stack tests and air permit applications that are specific to wood pellet plants show that a facility this size, with the controls proposed by the company, will emit at least 40 tons of total hazardous air pollutants per year, the law center states, calling for the agency to withdraw the application until the issues are addressed. Despite short-term rental laws in Grace Harbor County, Seabrook developers get the go-ahead for Pacific Beach expansion. The project will bring more than 150 units of attainably priced housing. That's the news speak of the daily world, as they quote the developers of Seabrook, Washington. A strange turn of phrase with no clear meaning, but certainly not affordable. Developers of Seabrook, including owner Casey Roloff, recently received approval for its first housing development in the nearby community of Pacific Beach. Because of course they did. Not only that, but it passed unanimously, by only three individuals with the power to approve such a massive development. 
On land adjacent to State Route 109 and across from the Naval property, developers plan to build 82 single-family homes, 4 duplex lots, and 68 condo or apartment units in neighborhood pedestrian-friendly streets, green open spaces, and courtyards similar to Seabrook. The plan is to have a cheap, knockoff version of Seabrook, but still out of the reach of the average worker. With the expansion in motion and in a pinched affordable housing market, Roloff said Seabrook also wanted to ensure adequate housing for people that wanted to live and work at the beach. Adequate, not affordable. These houses aren't meant for the average worker. They are meant for techies, remote workers, and second homers. The Sugar Daddy property developers got many exemptions to the normal rules and regulations, but the kicker is that they won't have to abide by the recently passed short-term rental permitting requirement, as long as they are all managed by a single company. Roloff told the Daily World last year that all vacation rentals in Seabrook are managed by the town's hospitality department, meaning it already has the infrastructure, like security and staffing, to mitigate potential problems with rentals. And because new developments are being built from scratch, any short-term rentals won't displace a any short-term rentals won't displace existing neighborhoods. Roloff said the new development is intended to provide primary housing, not vacation rentals. Local fascist council member Riley Carter arrested for domestic violence. Recently elected right-wing psycho Riley Carter was arrested this week on charges of fourth-degree assault slash domestic violence and interfering with the reporting of domestic violence, both misdemeanor offenses, according to a news release by the Aberdeen Police Department. The police first received a call at 1.32 a.m. on Monday from a 32-year-old woman who reported being physically assaulted by her husband. Upon arriving, they interviewed both parties and detained Carter, transporting him to the city jail. Because he is a city council member, recently entering his first term in office, the Hoquiam Municipal Court will handle the case to avoid a potential conflict of interest. The Daily World reached out for comment and was asked to respect their privacy at this time, but they did publish this part of the Washington State Code. According to the Washington State Code, quote, the conviction of a public officer of any felony or malfeasance in office shall entail, in addition to such other penalty as may be imposed, the forfeiture of his or her office, and shall disqualify him or her from ever afterward holding any public office in this state. An editorial note says, we support all survivors of domestic violence and do not believe that the state or the police are responsible or safe way to deal with such a pernicious problem. Mutual aid and community organizing can create strong bonds outside of the nuclear family, which disrupts abusers' attempts to isolate and manipulate their victims. We can create a society free from this oppression only if we first acknowledge all the ways that patriarchy contributes to the oppression of us all. It also lists some domestic violence resources here in so-called Grace Harbor, including the Domestic Violence Center of Grace Harbor at 2306 Sumner Avenue in Hoquiam, 360-538-0733, as well as the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence at 1-800-818-2194, or First Steps, Women at Risk at 360-532-8631, extension 237, or Beyond Survival at 360-533-9751. Or there is the Chehalis Tribal Domestic Violence Prevention Program at 360-709-1733. Or you can reach out to the Mutual Aid Network by texting 206-530-7806. Aberdeen City Council denies festival funding for new mayor's nonprofit. The Aberdeen City Council on Wednesday 
halted lodging tax funding for a nonprofit led by Mayor Douglas Orr to hold a pair of prominent art festivals in the city, with some councillors citing a broad city charter that strictly prohibits city officials from having an interest in city contracts. The vote came two meetings after a divided council sent back initial recommendations from the city's Lodging Tax Advisory Committee, or LTAC, to award funding for Harbor Art Guild, for which Orr serves as president of the board of directors, with the council requesting more discussion and information about a potential conflict of interest. Wednesday's council, which has since December 20th turned a handful of seats to Republican candidates, denied funding for the guild nearly unanimously, with only Scott Prado opposed to the motion and Liz Ellis abstaining. The vote was a tumultuous finish to Orr's first month as mayor of Aberdeen that put his new role as leader of the city at odds with the work that helped him get there. It also casts uncertainty over the future of the Rainglow Festival and Aberdeen Art Walk, annual summer art festivals downtown. The money comes from taxes imposed on hotel, motel, and short-term rental stays and must be spent for the purpose of drawing tourists back to Aberdeen. The LTAC committee that recommends funding amounts to the council is five members, including applicants, hospitality business owners, and the city's finance committee chair, in this case, Councillor Debbie Pierachini. They cited legal concerns over conflict of interest and said they were guided by the city charter in coming to their decision. Many citizens complained about the decision, including Orr, whose response was as unstable and petty as always. He said, If the council and the city doesn't want to have that kind of event and they don't want to do those kind of things, then that's on them. I'm not going to beg them to allow me to waste months of my time putting on an event that they don't want. Whatever happens, it seems these events are up in the air this year. And now it's time for a radical news roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. January 8th, Marvin Haynes exonerated and released from prison after 19 years. January 16th, London, 200,000 protesters march against Israel's war on Gaza. January 17th, lions face starvation in Gaza's last remaining zoo. January 18th, one year since Tortuguita's killing, a reflection on our coverage of the movement against Cop City and the first eco-activist killed in the U.S. January 18th, Greek anarchist collective targeted by the state. January 19th, thousands of asylum seekers stranded along border wall near Sasabe, Arizona. January 23rd, Palestinian paints murals on rubble amid war on Gaza. And January 24th, protests against Smith Foundry, ex-EPA scientist calls pollution regulations a smokescreen. It's going down, and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. January 4th. Anti-fascists in Ohio call for counter-demonstration against far-right rally on January 6th. January 4th. Hamilton New Year's Noise Demo Report Back 2023 January 6th 
Report back from noise demo at Metropolitan Correction Center in Chicago. January 6. Wrench strike. Putnam tenants struggle over toxic levels of lead. January 6. Statement on sweep and destruction of Black Lives Memorial Garden. January 9th. Blockades and direct actions in solidarity with Palestine continue to grow. January 10th. A report back from the New Year's Eve noise demo at, at CMF Vacaville. January 10th. Drawing connections from Palestinian liberation struggle to American prisoners. January 10th. This year we free them all. Report back from noise demo at Pima County Jail. January 11th. Statement of solidarity with Red Onion prisoners on hunger strike. January 11th. Wilani Defense Society in Bloomington, Indiana calls on nationwide insurance to drop Cop City. January 11th. Urgent fundraising support needed for anti-fascist Daryl Lamont Jenkins. January 13th. Cities across the U.S. set to gather for Day of the Forest Defender in memory of Tortuguita. January 13th. Heat waves and wildcat strikes. January 13th. Anti-fascists make short work of Proud Boys' billboard in the Inland Empire. January 13th. Announcing Ananthema, Volume 10, Issue 1. January 13th. This is America, Number 192. Seattle Mutual Aid Hub and Garden Attacked. Week of Action Against MVP, Forest Defense in California. January 16th. Fight for others like you would fight for your own freedom. Eric King on Building a Fighting Abolitionist Movement. January 17th. Resistance, repression, and the fight against the Mountain Valley Pipeline, six years on in Appalachia. January 18th. Hunger strike at Red Onion Prison continues. Rashid Johnson continues fight. January 19th. Canadian Tire Fire Number 67. Tenants launch occupation in Toronto. International students protest grow. Land defense and Palestine solidarity. January 21st. Final straw. Sean Swain's 10-year radio anniversary. January 22nd. Phone zap called in support of Rashid Johnson and hunger strikes in solidarity confinement at Red Onion Prison. January 23rd. Protesters shut down BAE Systems Testing Center in Sterling Heights, disrupting profits to the war machine. January 23rd. Remembering Tortuguita in Atlanta, a vigil for the slain abolitionist. January 23rd. Davis, California, anti-Semitic flyers removed and burned. January 24th. Breaking borders. Report on anarchist organizing in solidarity with migrants in Chicago. January 25th. Support Chris, Big Tex G, community organizers from North Texas targeted by fascists. Crime Thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. January 8th. Gaza solidarity actions continue from Durham to Seattle with a report from the blockade of I-5. January 17th. Getting there. The road to the Zapatista Encuentro. January 18th. The 2024 Zapatista Encuentro. A report back with footage of a play about the movement to stop Cop City. January 19th. How to host a haunted house. A guide for anarchists with a video walkthrough. And finally, January 23rd. Three classic crime think books in Portuguese. Resucitas para o desastre, espere resistencia en días de guerra, noites de amor. That is, recipes for disaster, expect resistance, and days of war, nights of love. It looks like it's time for a musical break, and we'll be right back with our interview with Royt. But first, here is Which Side Are You On? by Pete Seeger and the Almanac Singers. Hit it! 
Molotov Now. Today we are joined by local IWW organizer and activist Reut to talk about the efforts being taken here in Aberdeen to organize the unhoused into a community union. He also wrote the audio zine that we will be airing about these efforts. Could you introduce yourself for our audience and describe any relevant organizing that you've done? Yeah, uh, howdy. Uh, I joined the Industrial Workers of the World back when I lived in Portland because uh, I wanted to organize the bakery that I used to work at. I heard about what they had accomplished with unionizing Burgerville, and I was pretty impressed. After joining, I was able to take the org's two levels of organizer training classes, OT-101 and OT-102, and I learned a lot. Since then, I've been involved in a lot of organizing within the service industry. I've also had the privilege to work as an outside organizer on a number of campaigns, supporting the development of nascent freelance unions in the service industry, in academia, in tech, in publishing, in aerospace, and many other fields. I believe that humble people taking collective action is the solution to most of the problems currently facing our society. Long before I joined the union, however, I was involved in direct aid and advocacy for houseless people in my community. From when I was a young teenager onwards, I had friends who were experiencing housing insecurity, sometimes along with their entire family. So when I was in high school, I got involved with Food Not Bombs and the local needle exchange and other groups like that. When I was in my 20s, I worked in the nonprofit shelter system, and I saw a lot of people who needed more help than they were getting. It made me a big believer in the principle of solidarity, not charity. Many houseless people don't need the kind of half-assed band-aid support the liberal nonprofits are offering. Their main need is for people like cops and landlords and real estate developers to stop making things worse for them. The IWW defines a union as two or more workers working together to change their industry but I think that union tactics can be applied to a wide range of situations. Labor unions rely on significant community organizing to accomplish what they do. I think that a primary failure of the labor movement thus far has been to relegate this community organizing to second-class status. 
Put it another way, if we are intent on organizing to actually confront and defeat capitalism, then that must include tenants unions, houseless unions, unions of disabled folks, transit riders unions, unions of unemployed folks, and others. Workplace organizing is important, but so is community organizing. Capitalist oppression happens in many areas of life besides work. It must be confronted in many areas of life besides work. And, happily, many of the same tactics that work at our job also work in other areas of life. The difference between a union and a generic activist group is that I advocate using the specific tactics of the IWW. Transparent, democratic, a-hierarchical management by the masses of the membership, and a focus on direct action and mutual aid rather than advocacy and reform. I say that instead of two workers working together to change their workplace, a union is two or more people working together to change their world. So, from what I understand, you're not from Grace Harbor, but we're contacting from people who live here in the community about starting an unhoused union here. Is that correct? Yeah. So, a mutual friend from Olympia reached out to me and said that people in Grace Harbor were looking for an organizer from the IWW. I don't really represent the IWW in any official capacity. I actually haven't even paid dues recently. The whole point of the IWW is to organize workers, not jobs, and make every member an organizer. So, here I am. I've always had kind of a soft spot for Grays Harbor. It seems like this was a region that rebelled very hard in the early part of the 20th century and has been punished by the ruling class ever since. And I had been hearing good things about the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network for a while. So when we got in touch, I was pretty excited. Yeah, the mutual aid does some great work here in the community. I imagine lots of the conversations that they have had is what led up to the push for unionization. What is the need that has been identified in the community that led to the initial plans for this union? Uh, well, primarily, it seems there is an encampment of about 100 to 150 people living down by the waterfront. Many other people sleeping rough around Aberdeen, Hoquiam, and Cosmopolis besides that. BIPOC folks and the so-called mentally ill, including those struggling with chemical dependency, are overrepresented in this community because of the different but sometimes interlocking oppressions they face. In concrete terms, what we're talking about is a situation wherein people are living four to five adults to a tent, or else two adults with one to four kids. Illnesses and malnutrition are common. Access to medical care is limited. These tents are pitched near, but not beneath the bridges in downtown Aberdeen, in abandoned lots by saltwater which occasionally flood at high tide. Parts of the encampment are surrounded by large barrier rocks that look straight out of Mordor. The city saw fit to place these rocks where the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network had been distributing free mules to the community. On a larger scale, though, the problems with housing in Grays Harbor stem from chronic underdevelopment of housing infrastructure combined with the gentrification and a lack of stable employment in the area. We need to ameliorate the desperate conditions that individuals are facing this very night, and we need to simultaneously engage the larger social factors that have led to this intolerable situation in the first place. For the last few years, there has been a lot of community support in the form of hot meals and other direct aid. At some of these meals, the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network organizers passed around a questionnaire asking the people who attended what kinds of things they needed. Almost everyone said that they wanted a union for unhoused people. So, following those instructions, we are now attempting to do the people's work. So it sounds like a lot of prior organizing has laid the groundwork for this campaign. What would you say the goals are for this new push of unionization of the unhoused here in Aberdeen? That is a great fucking question. My personal goal is to empower people who are sleeping outside to organize themselves as a community and to support them in doing whatever they need to get permanent housing. 
I have some ideas on tactics and things that might work, but really we are attempting to do something here which hasn't been done before. So it will require new ways of thinking and organizing. And it is important that this campaign be genuinely led by people sleeping outside. I don't have a grand plan and a bunch of resources that I can wave my wand and save everyone in Aberdeen. I would if I could, and this is the next best thing I have for you. So my short-term goal is to give unhoused people in Grace Harbor some tools to become organizers themselves. That's why I wrote this zine, and the plan is to hand it out to folks along with notebooks, pens, and other basic supplies so they can deeply observe and record what they're experiencing. To organize the community, we need to understand the community, and we need to have eyes and ears observing the community. The first wave of organizer scouts will investigate the real conditions of the community, find out who is living where, what they need, and what is the best way to get it to them. Once we have made these social charts of the community, we can decide where to best focus our strategic efforts. Flexing the muscles of communicating and working together in ways very different from how we are trained but to by the capitalist system. We are going to ask people what they would change about their community if they had the power. Then we're going to organize the people so they have that power. I want to share with the community tools for democratic communication and decision making that will allow the people to directly conceive and act upon their own goals. Once that happens, the aim will be to gain strategic initiative over the local ruling class and begin to enact large-scale, irreversible changes, such as decommodifying existing housing and building new housing. Ultimately, we will make it so that no one has to sleep outside in Grays Harbor. I don't think it's possible without directly confronting colonial capitalism. That's a beautiful goal. Not simply the eradication of the currently unhoused, as is the plan now, but true equity in housing, so that there are no members of our community forced to be unhoused in the first place. Aberdeen has a long and storied history of the IWW and unhoused organizing. In fact, this was where the Industrial Union took over the American labor movement in the early 20th century. The people of the region participated in major struggles for their beliefs and their rights, and were brutalized for it. Is this new campaign taking this history into account, and how does this history inform the decisions going forward? Absolutely. This has already come up a fair bit, and I expect it will come up more as we talk with the larger Aberdeen community. I've always been struck by kind of a great paradox of local history whenever I visit Grays Harbor. It's like people know about the history, but they also don't know. It seems like it's only spoken of in whispers. I've met more than a few old-timers out here who seem like crusty Republicans at first, but then once you get to know them, they're to the left of Machno. I feel like some bad shit happened here during McCarthyism that no one wanted to talk about with the following generations. But the Red Scare didn't completely kill off the memories of rebellious workers. Regardless, few people around here have a neutral reaction to the Wobblies. And I think it's interesting that the Union still has such a reputation in the Northwest after all this time. Since I don't know the Aberdeen community as well as some of you, I guess I'm not sure exactly how it will go. I will say that in the modern day, community safety is a huge part of our concern. The whole point of what we're doing is to make a safer, friendlier community where people can live healthier lives. I can honestly say that everything we're doing is part of an attempt to work towards a more peaceful and prosperous Aberdeen. I think a lot of people around here know bits and pieces of the story of the IWW's history, but few people appreciate how huge it was. The IWW directly operated cooperative mills and factories in Grays Harbor, around Willapa Bay, and in Olympia, Tacoma, and Seattle. In these mills and factories, the Union democratically controlled hiring, firing, and all workplace policies. There were even logging towns where the Union kicked out the bosses completely and operated their sawmills as cooperative industries. 
In the early 20th century, these IWW towns were refuges for Japanese, indigenous, and Latine workers because the IWW didn't practice racial or gender discrimination when other unions did. During the Depression, and especially after World War II, the ruling class came down hard on all of this, closing up cooperative businesses and union shops with a heavy hand. And it's a large reason for the economic underdevelopment in Grace Harbor today. I think it's especially important that the young people around here should know the history of the radical struggles here and how that relates to the region's current economic depression. Yeah, I think education has been a very central part of the organizing that we have documented on the harbor. Getting people to connect with their history gives them the tools they need to reject the political labels that have been ascribed to them throughout their lives. It's so important that we commit to the political education of the region. We have had this population in our community for generations, but as a colonial settlement, we've been here an incredibly short amount of time. Because of that, we are able to trace the cycle of poverty that capitalism engenders through various stories that have been had within our families. Has the current IWW as a whole been supportive of the renewed interest in organizing this population? What kind of pushback has there been? So probably the biggest disappointment I experienced upon joining the IWW in the 2010s was realizing that they don't actually organize houseless and unemployed people anymore. And I have a theory as to why. Uh, In the 1950s, after the second Red Scare, the IWW was down to about 300 members. The core of the organization remained, but only as a kernel. Many old ideas and systems were left dormant during this period. The IWW did not grow again significantly until the later part of the 1960s, when an organization called Students for a Democratic Society split due to FBI infiltration. The ones who weren't feds somehow networked the new left together with the old left and joined the IWW old-timers holding it down in Chicago. This saved the organization, but it changed its character. The injection of largely middle-class and white college student organizers had the effect of changing the IWW from a mass-scale working-class organization to an elite middle-class organization. In many real ways, I think that the ILWU and a few other unions have remained more in touch with the radical working-class roots of the IWW than the actual current IWW does. I don't mean to sound overly negative talking about the union, these are just my honest impressions, and things that I wish people in the union talked about more candidly and less partisanly. Basically, today the IWW is undergoing a culture shift back towards its mass-scale working-class roots. There are some folks in the union, we call them wobservatives, who seem to like things the way they are, and I've never really understood that. But I don't want to compete or argue with them. I just focus on educating and organizing the people around me. It can be a problem, however, because it seems to me that these people and their workerist focus are the reason that the IWW no longer organizes houseless and unemployed people. They are very focused on procedure and making sure that people pay dues and seem uninterested in people who they perceive as unlikely to pay dues regularly. Historically, it seems many IWW locals took the opposite approach and just didn't charge dues to people if they were unemployed. I think this makes sense. Today, several individual branches have made moves to stop charging dues from unemployed and or disabled workers, and there have even been stipends to pay unemployed workers to engage in organizing. I think that this is the way forward, and I hope that IWW Central continues to support programs like this. The mission of the IWW is to organize the working class industrially as an entire class. We have always accomplished this by organizing those that the traditional unions have deemed unorganizable.
This group you refer to as Wobservatives sounds a lot like the old Union Vanguard that was in place before the first push by what was then called the Overall Brigade, or Bummery, to organize the unhoused and unemployed. In the early parts of the century, this so-called Bummery basically took control of the IWW at its convention in Chicago and began fervently organizing among the travelers, unemployed, and unhoused. Listeners can read more about this campaign on our website. We've republished the article from the New Aberdeen Bulletin being put together by the New Aberdeen IWW. The IWW once said that its goal was to organize workers, not jobs. How can the current IWW membership be swayed into supporting this cause and living up to these lofty goals? I think your analysis of the history is basically correct. There have always been workerist tendencies within the union, and there will always be some degree of tension due to internalized classism within the union. I think that a large solution to this classism is political education, but there also just needs to be regular interaction between these different parts of the union. There is a lot to be learned from how the historic IWW dealt with similar situations. The real problem with the Wobservatives is their tendency to slow down operations. I believe they are and always have been a minority in the organization, and it seems like every day I have conversations with Wobs from different locals who are like, um, excuse me, but what the heck is Central doing? To be completely honest, I ran out of answers in 2020. Due to the influence of Wobservatives on a lot of the union bureaucracy, the IWW missed a lot of great opportunities to support tenant organizing, mutual aid networks, and the movement for racial justice in 2020. In my opinion, it hasn't regained strategic initiative since. For instance, the first Starbucks store that was organized in Buffalo, New York, was actually organized by former Wobblies using IWW techniques who had left the union because the number of high-profile Wobservatives said that Starbucks is too hot of a shop to organize. In labor organizing, a hot shop is one where there is a high degree of conflict between the workers and management. A lot of Wobservatives don't like to organize hot shops because the campaigns fail a lot. However, I cynically notice that the Wobservatives' campaigns also seem to fail a lot. It seems like organizing unions is just difficult. I also noticed that the IWW itself was initially formed by miners from the Western Federation of Miners, who worked in hotter shops than most of us can possibly imagine. Now, the Starbucks Workers United is actually larger than the entire IWW, with 385 stores unionized. Those could have all been IWW shops if the central leadership were more daring. IWW membership was consistently rising from roughly the 1970s until 2015 or so, at which point there was a massive upswing in membership. Since 2020, that massive upswing has been reversed, and the IWW now has fewer regular dues-paying members than it did when I joined. In a time of union ascendancy, when the so-called business unions are seriously talking about four-day work weeks, the IWW can ignore these trends at their own peril. I don't really care one way or another, because I don't think that org splitting is inherently a bad thing, leftist hot take. The IWW didn't get big historically by having a lot of one-on-one conversations. It got big by affiliating with other unions. Almost as soon as the IWW was formed, a lot of the most radical members, indigenous dock workers in Vancouver, BC, split off, forming their own organization called OBU, the One Big Union. They didn't disagree with the goals of the IWW, just how the IWW was going about them and they said they could always reaffiliate later. And in fact, in the last few years, many IWW locals and incarcerated workers outreach committee chapters have done exactly that. The union isn't real. It's just all of the individual relationships between people in the union. The relationships are more important than the formal structure and always have been. 
In Marxist terms, I believe that the lumpen proletariat has always and will always leave the revolution. These were the people who historically made up the so-called bummery or overalls brigade. Historically, they were traveling workers hopping freight trains, and today they're people facing housing insecurity in small post-industrial towns across North America. So earlier you mentioned some historical examples of the IWW organizing in the PNW outside of traditional labor organizing, such as running directly operated cooperative enterprises, even whole settlements where they kicked the bosses out of town entirely. One could hardly imagine what a community ran by labor might look like. Could you talk about how the community organizing of the IWW of old showed itself in these settlements? Yeah, I mean, the main the main one that I know about is a town that was, well, is now a ghost town around here that's um, kind of about halfway in between Chehalis and Raymond uh, that's called Wallville, which was named after... You know, one guy who ran the logging company back in the name was Walton, and the other guy was Somethingville. And so they put the two bosses' names together, and they got Wallville. And there's most of the information that I know about this comes from a few friends of mine who live in the area who did a bunch of deep diving research reading the old newspapers that um, they have in Chehalis. There's a lot of cool old stuff to be learned from like local newspapers in this area. Um, they often did not have very good things to say about the IWW, uh, but they were still covering them constantly because it was like, it was a constant thing. There was a, there was a large <laughs> rural working class resistance in this part of the country. Anyway, so Walville, um, to, to make a long story short, you know, they had a union campaign. There was a, it was a company town logging. They had a logging mill. They had a short line railroad that went up into the hills to get all the logs. And, you know, they had um, a bar and other things like that in the town. Um, but the only way in or out was on the railroad. There wasn't like a road back then. <laughs> um, and, uh, so the union organized the logging mill uh, and eventually got to the point where they were running everything directly. They, you know, they, they kicked out the management and the bosses and they were just making money selling timber products and splitting the money amongst themselves. So um, the whole town was just ran by the IWW. Yeah. I mean, essentially, yes, I, I wish that I knew more about specifically how they were operating because what I've been trying to find is, and if anyone listening to this <laughs> out there knows anything about this, help me out. What I've been trying to find is IWW records that talk about this, which may be a long shot because the entire organization was like 300 people in a box of files in Chicago in the fifties. Right. So like basically all the old IWW records from that period are gone. However, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know, maybe there's something somewhere. I've been looking through a lot of the old archives and stuff and trying to find information about this and, and other towns. I don't even know the names of some of these other towns, but I've, I've found all these like weird rumors. There was a lot of shit going on back then. So with Wallville specifically, the whole thing kind of fell apart basically because of the depression. There was a, there was a large fire at the mill and no one would give them a loan to rebuild it. Because they were like, oh, these are the weirdo anarcho-communists. Like, don't, don't give those guys a loan. And so 
it things kind of fell apart and people had to move elsewhere and now now it's a total ghost town the only thing that's left is there's some of the foundation of the sawmill itself and as i said earlier the only way in or out was on the trains so when the white people in the town died they would get their bodies would be taken on the train to shahalis and buried in the in the graveyard there but there were also a lot of japanese workers there because the wobblies weren't didn't practice racial discrimination they would they would they would tolerate them unlike all the other towns in the area at the time were like no japanese people so the only other thing that's still out there besides the remnants of the sawmill is there's a small japanese graveyard that's out there that has like maybe a dozen graves or something um they're all in all this the gravestones themselves are all written in japanese so i don't know what they say you know but i don't know it's it's a very interesting uh spot to go to it's kind of right off the highway and i don't know it's an interesting little little piece of history because i have like all that stuff really did happen out here like people were like freeing space and uh kicking out the 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 ruling class you know and and no one talks about this people in the union don't talk about this whenever i talk to people in iww about this they're like what and i'm like yeah no like this happened (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, it's something that that needs to be researched more, you know, like, um, I'm sure there's all kinds of old stuff in the old newspapers out here. uh, And, you know, and I don't know, like, maybe some old timers know some stuff that I would love to talk to them, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a fun project for Sabo Media, actually, is cataloging some of these local histories. If anyone in town or in the area who's listening would like to get a hold of us and talk about any of the history that they're aware of in town, you can do that at sabo underscore media at riseup.net. And we would be, we appreciate that quite a bit. Well, certainly organizing this population is going to pose its own unique challenges as opposed to a workforce and will require its own set of tactics. What kind of thought has been given to what measures would be effective in pressuring the, the city, for example, into capitulating to your campaign's goals? I think that we need to be studying community organizers from a wide variety of different contexts. What worked historically and what's working right now. Not just unions, but also groups like the Black Panthers and the Zapatistas. Ultimately, I believe that a strong, organized community will be able to work in its own self-interest and change realities on the ground in ways that the city government is not only forced to accept, but actually welcomes as positive change. Zapatistas talk about cultivating a situation where the people talk and the government listens. In the IWW, we talk a lot about flipping the script with bosses and managers. By inverting power dynamics in unexpected and unpredictable ways, we can accomplish things that may seem now distantly unlikely. Ultimately, I would guess that few people want the status quo to remain in Grace Harbor. Something has to change. If we form a group of people, a union, which has the clearest understanding of the local problems, then we can clearly articulate the most effective local solutions. If we can solve real problems for the masses of people, they'll recognize the honesty and effectiveness in what we are attempting to do. Our power is based in the community, not the government. When the people can form and clearly express their own collective will, nothing can stop them. We want to build a stronger, kinder world in the here and now. Everyone stands to benefit from that. So, in Grace Harbor, there is unfortunately a persistent culture of of far-right-wing politics in this county. 
Cybo Media has documented how most of our elected officials subscribe to ideas that border on the fringes of white nationalism, and some go as far as to sprout QAnon-esque conspiracies about their detractors. This hostile political culture will undoubtedly oppose what you are trying to do here. How can you safeguard the movement against the eventual attempts to halt progress or dismantle the movement? This is a difficult question, especially because most of the people who talk about anti-fascist community defense tend to be in large cities. Without having any sympathy for the far right, it's easy to see that they also have a strong desire to change things. So while we may disagree strongly with the reactionaries, we are not trying to protect the status quo either. So it's easy for us to say that we aren't Democrats and we also distrust the government. Often, I find that this throws right-wing people off guard. The other thing to remember is that while these types are loud, they are essentially just bullies. If they detect that the majority of people in a given situation are against them, they will become increasingly likely to disengage. If they think they would be made to look foolish or ignorant, they also become increasingly likely to disengage. If you're able to publicly embarrass them, they usually just leave straight up. My most used line on these trolls is, dude, do you really think you're making yourself look good right now? Appeal to their sense of narcissism. In my experience, it almost always makes them shut up. This is not to downplay the rising threat of fascist violence in North America. It often needs to be confronted directly. However, fascism is created by larger social factors. The solution is not to engage individual fascists, but rather to cultivate larger-scale stability and political education within the community. People turn to conspiracy theories when they don't understand the bad shit that's happening to them, and they don't have good info about it. The ruling class doesn't want us to have good info about how our communities are working. That's why we have to go around and talk to people directly and take notes. Ultimately, what I think we should be doing is focusing on building a culture of community care. No one wants to live somewhere with tents on the street. The conservatives just have limited vision and blame the individuals who are sleeping in tents. But the real fault lies in greater social factors, the interactions between government regulations, real estate developers, and large-scale property holders. Making people aware of this and giving them words and tools to describe what is happening to them in late capitalism is fundamental. I think most people want change, but they're not sure what to do. The ruling class wants them to feel powerless. People need clear plans of action. They also need better ways to communicate with each other. Capitalist culture encourages us to feel atomized. It discourages us from supporting each other by making us feel like no one will have our own back when it's our turn. Often, it prevents people from having our back in real ways. If we build a culture of mutual trust and respect throughout the community, through building a good record of actually solving problems for people in the community, then there's no telling what will happen. Yeah, that component of culture building is crucial. So what can be done to build that culture of mutual aid and solidarity in our community? I feel like I almost found, sound like a broken record, but political education and practical solidarity. Learning together, encouraging people to self-learn, and proactively solving problems for each other. We need to show people in Grace Harbor a better path and then walk it with them. No more and no less. A lot of people are cynical about organizing to make things kinder in such a cruel world. But it's harder to dismiss people with idealistic sounding words when they are also on the ground, hearing the people's concerns and proactively solving their problems. No one is coming to save Aberdeen except for the people who are already here. No one is going to tell you it's time to free yourself. Only you can decide when that time comes. Bluntly, the bosses, along with their police and their bureaucrats, have failed this region by any metric. We have to do better. I believe the community can and will do better. These are hard times. 
I think the most important thing is to always remain focused on how they could be better. Then, make yourself the reason things do get better. Focus on the future. Things will be brighter when we make them brighter. Well, we are certainly glad to see this kind of organizing taking place here in Aberdeen, but ultimately this needs to spread everywhere if we are to make things better. Have you thought at all about how to replicate this model in other locations? Replicability is something that we've been talking about since day one. We intend to record what we're doing and create living documents which we can share with people in other communities. Recording our meeting notes, recording our actions, recording the results, and analyzing them. Once we analyze them, we can see what worked and what didn't work and share the stories with other communities. At the same time, we also need to be aware of what people are doing elsewhere. I've heard some pretty interesting stories about people organizing a union for houseless people in Sacramento, for instance, and I'm sure many other areas. A lot of my old friends from Portland have been doing some really inspiring direct aid work to unhoused people lately. I'd like to learn more about all of these projects, network together, and share what works. So if people want to learn more about this type of organizing and keep up with the latest from here in Aberdeen, or if people want to read or download and print the zine, where can they find it? Yeah, I don't know if we even figured that out yet. (laughs) Uh, I just wrote it and I was focusing on getting physical copies into people's hands uh, because so many unhoused people have irregular access to phones and computers anyway. We should host it on your website, though, I guess. (laughs) You're, You're better at the social media stuff. Yeah, we'll do that. There are already a few articles detailing some of the deeper history that we've skimmed today and future plans for the local union up on the website, sabomedia.noblogs.org, as well as the new website, aberdeeniww.noblogs.org. Sabo Media will be co-publishing the new bulletin produced by the Aberdeen IWW on our website so that our audience can stay up to date with what's going on on this invaluable campaign. We can probably host the zine at both websites. And now, we would like to debut the audio zine, Organizing the Unhoused, an Organizer's Manual. But first, we have a musical break with I'm Gonna Join That One Big Union by Woody Guthrie. Hit it! Join it by myself Don't want nobody to join it for me I'm gonna join a one big union by myself And if that road gets rough and rocky And the hills get steep and high We will sing as we go marching And we'll win the one big union by and by. You've got to join that one big union, CIO. You've got to join it by yourself. Everybody here will join it with you. You've got to join a one big union by yourself. Everybody here will join it with him 
Brother's got to join the one big union by himself. Sister's got to join that one big union. Sister's got to join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with her. Sister's got to join the one big union by herself. It's rough and rocky, rough and rocky, and the hills get steep and high. We will sing as we go marching, and we'll win the one big union by and by. Organizing the Unhoused, an organizer's manual. Originally published at sabomedia.noblogs.org. Once you have freedom from the wage slavery, then join the grand industrial band. Once you from misery and hunger be free, bond you your share lend a hand. But there is power, there is power in band of working folks when we stand hand in hand. Power that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial. I wrote this booklet because I find it difficult to sleep in my nice warm bed, in my nice warm house, when there are so many people around me sleeping rough in winter conditions. Forcing people to sleep outside is an intolerable crime that would be considered unacceptable for prisoners of war. People who are forced to sleep outside are being treated by the government worse than enemy combatants. People who live in houses and do nothing but watch this situation unfold should be deeply ashamed of themselves. I want to give you and the people around you tools to start a radical union of unhoused people and get more dignity, safety, and respect as soon as possible. This booklet is short and to the point because people don't have extra time. I'm sorry it's not shorter, but I felt everything that I included was very important. I apologize if anything is unclear. Please give any feedback you have to the person who gave you this scene or send it to AberdeenIWW at RiseUp.net and it will be incorporated into the next edition. A word on words. Some people prefer the term houseless. Some people prefer the term homeless. Some people prefer the term unhoused people. I mostly default to houseless, but maybe you don't like this term very much. That's okay. I'm just some guy. Don't put too much stock into what I say. There is power, there is power in kind of working folks when we stand in Part zero, build trust, fight bigotry. The most important part of organizing a community union is to build friendly, trusting relationships. Today, we live in a society based on patronage. Patronage teaches me that I should only do things for other people if there's something in it for me. It also teaches me that we don't have anything in common. We're all merely individuals in competition with each other. But in reality, we're all in this together and we have a lot more to gain by cooperating with each other instead of competing. Our goal is to live in a society based on solidarity. Solidarity is not an abstract political idea or an ideological tool. Solidarity is helping people to get to their doctor's appointments. It's getting to know people. Hanging out, whether in groups or even just one-on-one, -on -one for a few minutes while waiting at the bus stop. Asking people how they're doing, 
listening to them vent, or buying them a cup of coffee. Solidarity is a man calling out other men for saying something misogynist when there are no women around. Solidarity means having someone's back without expecting anything in return. Sometimes it even means having someone's back when we stand to lose something. It means looking for the best in people and showing them that you see it in a way that makes them want to fight boldly towards their own liberation. It's also the recognition that all of our destinies are tied together. A victory for one is a victory for all. Solidarity is the practice of focusing on people's needs before assigning them duties. Hand in hand with this is the necessity of fighting against bigotry in the kiriarchy. The kiriarchy is a catch-all term for the different spokes which make up the intersectional wheel of racism, misogyny, homophobia, ableism, ageism, transphobia, classism, colonialism, and the many other fucked up things which crush us on a daily basis. These privileges and marginalizations assigned to various people serve a practical purpose within capitalism, to keep the people divided. Ending oppression is at the core of what we are doing here. To dismiss combating bigotry and curiarchy as unimportant or of secondary importance would be a massive mistake and has been the primary failure of the left so far. When we focus on friendliness and mutual respect, along with transparent, honest communication and fighting bigotry, mutual trust will naturally follow. To build a union, you and your fellow community members don't all have to like each other, but you do all have to trust each other. None of the information in this booklet will be useful to you if you cannot build a group of people who trust each other. But with trust in each other and a plan of action, nothing can stop you. Part 1. Start asking questions. Why start a community union? Organizing together is the most effective way to turn the balance of power in the community towards the people. If you want more control over your daily life, cooperating with the people around you is the fastest way to get there. What is a union? A union is two or more people working together to change their community. A union doesn't need recognition from the government, nonprofits, or other unions. Although these things can be good long-term goals, the very first unions obviously didn't have them. Early unions started from small groups of people, deciding they had had enough, that something had to be done, and that they were the only ones who were going to do it. No one told them to do it. In fact, a lot of people told them it couldn't be done. They did it anyway. Unions began in the middle of the 19th century as secret organizations of workers uniting against workplace abuse, lousy pay, dangerous conditions, long hours, workplace harassment and bigotry, and many other problems. It took many years of unionists facing violence, imprisonment, financial hardship, and death, but ultimately their struggles and sacrifices brought us many things which we now take for granted. They fought first for the 12, then the 8-hour workday, and when they won that, they kept fighting for the 4-hour workday, which we'll accomplish soon. From the creation of workplace safety standards and retirement plans to the end of child labor and legal racial gender discrimination in the workplace, the historic labor movement achieved massive advances for working people, some of which still benefit us today. In the early 1920s and 30s, a union called the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, organized houseless and unemployed folks under the principle of organizing workers, not jobs. Strong unions controlled hiring and firing across their whole industries, started direct aid programs for community members, advocated local, federal governments, and built apartment buildings for their union members to live in. 
This was cut back by the ruling class with the Red Scare in the 1950s, and then the Reagan era attacks on labor in the 1980s. But we can have all of this again when we build a new, stronger, resurgent union movement. All it takes is a few secret organizations taking a stand against capitalism. Solidarity unionism is the practice of building democratic unions from the bottom up. Those of us practicing solidarity unions don't focus solely on the workplace like more traditional trade unionism. We don't have expensive union dues or a ton of bureaucrats. We don't even need to organize with anyone beyond our own community if we don't want to. We're just ordinary working people struggling so that we can all have better lives. We believe that regular people know how to run their lives better than the government or landlords or anyone else. As a result, we should be collectively making the decisions around our communities. As community organizers, our most effective tool is asking people questions. Here are the most important. What would you change if you were in charge? Who benefits from that? Do you think that's right? How are we going to change it? Part two, record everything. Get a notebook and start recording information about the community. Keep a diary or log. Record what happens, even if it seems relatively meaningless. Recording things may be boring, but this is how we detect useful patterns. This also lets us look back on a timeline of our community organizing campaign. We can use this to see what is working and what doesn't work and give us ideas about where to go in the future. To change the community, first we have to understand the community. We understand the community by recording information about it, analyzing that information, and then coming up with new plans and ideas. The strength of a decentralized community union is in turning all of its members into member organizers. What do organizers do? We read, write, think, and talk. We learn about the community so that we can act strategically to help the community in the biggest ways. It would be cool if there were plucky reporters going around gathering info for truth-telling local newspapers. Unfortunately, we don't live in that world, so we have to do these things ourselves. A lot of the oppression that occurs under capitalism is only tolerated because people simply don't know about it. Many housed people don't understand how desperate things are for the unhoused. We should collect these stories and specific info about these people so that we can organize housed and unhoused people together and really begin to change things for the better around here. Workers pay attention to what I'm gonna mention. What is the fixed intention of the workers of the world? That we should all be ready, true hearted, brave, and steady. Together around our standard, where the flag is unfurled. Where the phrase of the river flows, each fellow worker knows they have believed in the restless, but still our union grows. And we're gonna find a way, folks. One-on-ones and meetings. A one-on-one is just a conversation between you and a community member. This is one of the main ways we build the union, especially early on. In a one-on-one, you should ideally be talking 20% of the time and listening 80% of the time. Also, it shouldn't last for more than about an hour. In general, two hours should be a hard limit for any union meeting. Using time wisely is extremely important. We're all already tired. We should be humbly and respectfully grateful for this time and respect our community members' strength for taking time out of their day to show up and make the world a better place. 
Don't drink a bunch or smoke hella weed or anything silly like that. We don't want anyone to get overly bold or agree to something while they're drunk and then feel manipulated later. We're not hanging out either. We can hang out immediately afterwards, but make a clear space for an organized conversation about the community. Coffee or tea and snacks are great if you can manage that. Sharing food and music builds trust between people. You should take notes at a meeting. A meeting is different from an informal conversation because a meeting has an agenda beforehand and notes taken and distributed afterwards. These are both important as they allow people who may not be present at the meeting to participate by reviewing the notes later and submitting items to the next agenda, and also just to form an important record of what decisions have been made. Larger meetings. Ultimately, the point of having one-on-ones with community members is to start having large community union meetings. Union meetings should be somewhat formal and have an appointed facilitator and separate note taker. The facilitator is not in charge, presenting information or telling anyone what to do. Rather, the facilitator is there to do things like taking stack, supporting the group in staying on topic, using time wisely, and addressing the role of privilege dynamics in the group. The note taker is there to record how people voted and write clear notes to communicate relevant information, what happened at the meeting, to people who aren't able to make it. These tasks are crucially important to building unions and ending oppression, and should be undertaken by fair, emotionally aware people. But to avoid the development of harmful power dynamics, these positions should also be regularly rotated. Ideally, everyone in the union should learn all of the skills involved in running the union for redundancy and transparency. Quick note about taking stack. Taking stack is a tool of democratic decision-making which we typically aren't taught in this oppressive society. Here it is in a nutshell. If someone decides they have something to say during a meeting while someone else is talking, they raise their hand. The person who is taking stack then writes down their name. When the person who is currently speaking is done, the stack taker calls on the next person on the stack to speak. A so-called progressive stack involves pushing people with traditionally marginalized identities and perspectives to the top of the stack above those whose perspectives are more dominant in our culture. This can be a great way to make arrogant white dudes less likely to derail shit, while encouraging those who are wary of speaking up due to the constant bigotry in our society. However, a progressive stack must also be approached with care, as it also involves necessitating that people out themselves as queer, trans, disabled, an immigrant, or marginalized in some other invisible way that they don't wish to be public about. Progressive stacks can be contentious and or alienating to some people, but enacting their spirit, if not their letter, is ultimately crucially important to building a culture of liberation. A lot of how you proceed here depends on the character of your specific community. As you can see, this is why choosing a good facilitator to take stack is important. You need to find someone who is aware of both privilege dynamics and people's emotions. An in-depth analysis of these methods is beyond the scope of this booklet, but it's worth reading about. It's also important to, if you can, offer childcare so parents can participate in the meetings. If you can afford these things, having food and coffee or tea at your meetings is extremely cool and will make your campaign stronger. Getting to the point where you can afford these things from regular donations and or union dues could be a good first goal. Looping in with food and drinks, a larger meeting should start and end with some kind of group-centering exercise that contributes to a sense of community and welfare between the people present. This will look like very different things in different workplaces and communities. 
but it's really important to build trust and unity in the group. Union meetings are as much about building emotional connections as practical concerns. A meeting needs an agenda. It's good to set up the agenda in some kind of Google Doc or something so people can contribute to it in the lead up to the meeting. An agenda means discussing and determining concrete goals and outcomes of previous actions. Start and end on time. Informal talking is okay afterwards, but don't make hard decisions. A meeting is not a conversation because a meeting has notes on a facilitator. A conversation is not a meeting because it is not transparently accessible to union members not present, and it is thus not a space for formal democratic decision-making. When you begin discussing an agenda item, decide how long you will talk about it. I recommend actually sticking to it by using a timer. It's rare that agenda items truly need more than 10 minutes of discussion. Use meeting time wisely. It is possibly the most valuable resource we have. Encourage people who are generally long-winded to keep it short and support people who are usually staying quiet to speak up. Build a culture that supports progressive attitudes towards questioning narratives, uplifting traditionally silenced perspectives, unorthodox thinking, and liberated nonviolent communication. Face conflict with serenity and trust. If your meetings are regularly going beyond two hours, they need better facilitation. You're not going to accomplish much with poor facilitation, no matter how much time you spend in meetings. Meetings going on for too long will sap energy from your campaign. Avoid long meetings at all costs. Prioritize agenda items so you can talk about anything time-sensitive first. Be honest with yourselves. Most things can wait until the next meeting. Treating everything as a crisis is a form of toxic urgency. It's almost always better to deal with something next week than it is to make everyone stay later than planned at a meeting. By the same token, make sure your meetings start on time. Activist meetings starting late is a bad, boring stereotype. It's fine if individuals show up late, but formal meetings with facilitators should start sharply at their posted time. If your meetings are regularly starting late, address the problem. Don't accept it. People have other appointments. They have to make their shifts or go to sleep or pick up relatives or take medications. The entire point of what we're doing here is getting more free time for working people. Do not waste people's time. They go wild, simply wild over me. Though I've never done the harm that I can see. I'm as gentle as a lamb, but they take me for a ramp. They go wild, simply wild over me. A-E-I-O-U. This is a way to remember a good general flow that a one-on-one conversation could follow. A-E-I-O-U. Agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, understand. Agitate. The idea is to get fired up with a community member about a situation that's currently fucking up our lives. Sometimes you might have to ask a couple questions to figure out exactly the best issue to push someone on it might not be the most obvious thing. 
What we want to do is find out how this community member is emotionally impacted by specific problems. When organizing with houseless people, this step is usually not very difficult. Educate. Suggest a solution to the problem that all of us community members can accomplish together. See Part 7, Tactics. Or tell a story about a successful campaign of houseless people elsewhere. Agitation poses a problem, and education demonstrates how we think solidarity unionism can solve that problem. Ask people to imagine how their community could be different. Who has the power to resolve these issues? Why aren't they? How can we take the power to resolve these issues ourselves? Inoculate. We don't want people to get so riled up that they do anything hasty. So, we inoculate by discussing the bad things that could happen as a result of organizing. But, we also discuss plans we have for dealing with those setbacks. This serves two purposes. One, we give people realistic expectations and don't set their hopes up too high. Two, we also show that we have seriously thought these things through and have not just a plan, but we've considered how that plan might go wrong and already made backup plans. Don't act as though what we're asking people to do is totally without risks, but there are already many risks from remaining in this current situation as well. Organizing together has the potential to help us all out in unexpected ways. Organize. Ask our community member to take on a concrete task related to organizing the community, such as having a one-on-one with a community member they get along with but you don't know very well, or developing a social chart or map of their section of the community, or it can even be as simple as meeting up and having another one-on-one with you in two weeks. Giving people tasks is crucial, not only because it makes them feel wanted and included, but also because sometimes they actually do them. It's extremely important to check in with people like a week or two later and see if they did the task. Approach it casually and non-judgmentally because we're all busy and they probably didn't do it. If they did, that's awesome. If they didn't, they might just need some support or maybe a different task. There's nothing wrong with that. Understand. Here we pause and take stock of the situation and what we've learned. We think about whether it's time to escalate the situation or if this community member isn't fired up enough yet. Escalation could mean something like asking this person to take out a union card and or commit to taking part in a protest action. But if they don't seem interested, then you can circle back to agitation and repeat the whole process as necessary, possibly in a future one-on-one. Escalating things is important, however, because if you don't, you're not organizing. If your community sees you just forming committees and having endless meetings, but not actually accomplishing things, not actually solving problems for the community, they'll start to lose confidence in the union campaign. After you have a one-on-one, take notes on what you talked about as soon as possible afterwards, what the person seemed to feel, what was discussed, how they reacted, if they agreed to do anything. Part five, community mapping and social charting. Draw a map of the place where you live. Mark things like where the police stations are, where the security cameras are, where there are community resources such as shelters, libraries, clinics, etc. Where there are encampments. Where could we have a secret conversation without being seen together on a camera? In the event of a protest, what could we block with a picket line? Or where else would be a highly visible place? Are there areas where the city says people should camp? Do people actually camp there? Why or why not? How is the physical layout of the community used against us? How can we use the physical layout of the community against the ruling class? 
Next, we're going to draw a map of the relationships between people in the community. Social charting has several purposes. Primarily, it tracks how information flows around the community. It allows us to see both formal and informal lines of communication. An example of formal communication could be the city government sending memos to nonprofit shelters, and informal communications would be social conversations and or gossip. Social charting answers questions like, who hangs out together? Who trusts each other? Who is political? Who is dating or married? Who shares religious community? Who goes to whom for help when shit goes down? Social charting allows us to see how the identity of individual community members intersects with the community and critically examine the ways our community members are variously privileged and marginalized. It is our most important duty to make sure that our organizing doesn't reproduce any oppressive behavior. We are here to liberate everyone, and that means starting by supporting the most oppressed. When the most oppressed people get what they want, we all get what we want. Social charting is also the foundation of relational security. By allowing us to visualize how information flows around the community, we can see who we should be organizing with first and who we should avoid. Most communities have some individuals who wield informal social power for various reasons. We need to be aware of these people and the influence they can have positively and or negatively on a unionization campaign. Anecdotally, I think in a given situation, roughly 15% of the people will do something positive, 15% of the people will do something negative, and everyone else just does whatever the person next to them does. These aren't meant to be exact numbers, just something to think about. We need to be very aware of people's tendency to go along with the majority group dynamics and take advantage of it rather than let it be used against us. Basically, I'm not saying organize with the popular people first, but like do think about how popular people will react if they're not included. Finally, social charting allows us to assemble contact information for our community members. Some folks are not going to have regular access to phones and computers, and in-person connections will always be preferable. A good social chart includes some kind of contact list, even if it's just something like an intersection where a person can often be found. In the gloom of mighty cities, midst the war of whirling wheels, we are toiling on like feudal serfs of old. And our masters hope to keep us ever thus beneath their heels, and to coin our very lifeblood in But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will see, when each one can live their life secure and free. Six, escalation strategy. When planning, performing, and analyzing an action, consider the following. Issue, what is the specific immediate problem? Demand, what could be done to fix the situation? Who has this power? Why is it not already being fixed? Goal, what is the desired outcome? Is it growing the campaign by showing strength? Is it setting up the local government to deny reasonable requests so they look like assholes? Target. How are you going to make the target do what you want? What is the most effective path to that goal for the least energy and resources? Participants. Organized community members 
who are actively taking part in the action. Witnesses. Other community members who aren't in the union campaign, including bystanders. Anyone who may be present but isn't directly involved. Results. What happened? Did you win or receive an acceptable good-faith counteroffer? Follow-up. After the action has taken place, follow up with the participants and witnesses and see how the action impacted them. Also, follow up with the target to ensure that they keep any promises they may have made. Also, think about what you would do better next time. Escalation. If the demand is not met, what steps will you take to increase pressure on the target? Different tactic? Same tactic, but with more participants? Same tactic, but with a different target? Etc. Part 7. Tactics. These are arranged roughly from lower intensity to higher intensity. Think about things like this. Would the target be more upset by a procedural legal challenge or by being publicly embarrassed? Would talking shit on the internet help or just annoy them? Would they be more uncomfortable with people flyering outside of their workplace or outside of their home? Would it be better to file some kind of appeal to a higher government authority or to occupy a local government building? Be cautious. Be smart. Don't get caught. Public shaming. Leave shitty reviews all over the internet, social media, etc. Reach out to local businesses and community orgs, flyer, post signs, attend city council meetings, protest outside the mayor's house, anything you can think of. Make sure your messaging is clear. Phone zap. Organize as many community members as possible to call into your target at the same time and complain about the same issue. Could also be an email zap, text zap, social media zap, etc. Information acquisition. Pretend to be someone you're not, on the internet or on the phone, and people might give you very different information than if you approach them genuinely. As just one example to get you thinking, a boss might say all kinds of interesting shit to someone they think is a sympathetic journalist that they would never say to their own employees. Think laterally. Someone I know outed an infiltrator by calling the guy's parents and pretending to be an insurance salesman. They were thrilled to brag about their son, the FBI agent. March on the boss. Get a large group of people together and interrupt whatever your target is doing, ideally in a highly public and embarrassing fashion. Present them with a list of demands signed by as many community members as you can get. Be dramatic. Boycott. Call for community members to stop supporting a business or businesses until your demands are met. Picket line. This involves you and your community members forming a line outside of the target's workplace, including protest banners, flags, songs, chants, and pamphlets about what you're doing to hand out to people. Getting people trained on marshalling a protest, keeping an eye out for nonsense, and being ready to talk down pigs and hired goons is very important but beyond the scope of this booklet. Squatting, occupying buildings against the wishes of their owners and the cops. Ultimately, as believers in solidarity, our final goal is to strike, occupy, and take over. The community already belongs to the people. Let's take it back. Do whatever you and your community members think is necessary to achieve your union's demands. Make up new tactics, outsmart your targets, and inspire the rest of us. Part 8. Stories. Besides asking questions, the next most important tool we have is telling stories. Stories are how we connect what's happening in our lives to the larger struggle, and how we learn about what others have achieved. Stories are much, much more important than economic or political theories because they're grounded in real life. Here's a story. During the Great Depression, people set up mutual aid networks all over and organized communities to prevent evictions and foreclosures. These piecemeal efforts were formalized by the Roosevelt administration after the fact, 
into many of the banking regulations which ended the depression. Those regulations were removed in the 80s and led to the 2008 recession. The mutual aid networks were formalized into social security and other welfare programs which have been chiseled away ever since. The government didn't give us these things initially and it doesn't have the right to take them away. Here's the story. Back in the 20s and 30s, unions built huge apartment buildings for their members to live in for free. Unions ran entire mill towns as collective enterprises. Everyone hired in particular industries had to be hired through specific union halls. Many workers today don't appreciate how much we've lost. Even simple pleasures like the ability to talk shit about the companies we work for without worrying about getting fired. Here's a story. During the Spanish Civil War, the Transit Workers Union assumed direct control of all the streetcars and buses in the city. They improved pay, instituted democratic worker control of the shops and stations, and significantly expanded service, even in the context of wartime shortages of tools and materials. There are relatively few stories of successful organizing amongst houseless people. We need your help to make more. If we organize community members to the point where they are organizers themselves, then they can go on to start campaigns of their own, possibly in new communities. We are a light, fast, hard-hitting resistance to the ruling class's slow-moving authoritarian bureaucracy. We are black cats who thrive on fucking shit up from the shadows. Every day there are more of us, and we are winning. Part 9. Marxist Economics for People Without Jobs Back in the day, a guy named Karl Marx wrote a lot of interesting shit. Later, a guy named Big Bill Haywood shortened it to, If one person has a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. That's most of what most people need to know about Marxist theory. We don't need jargon to know that bosses and landlords are assholes. We don't need theory to know that our families deserve to live better. And we know how to run our communities better than theorists who have never even been here. The problem is already that we're being told what to do, and our society develops fucked up situations because the people who are telling us what to do don't understand us. I have no time for a new system which keeps telling people what to do. I'm not against theory, but most people on the left massively overemphasize it. Putting things into practice is much more important. Oppose book worship. If you must study theory, you should at least study it in groups. We need more strong social groups capable of autonomous group self-education, and we need fewer highly educated individuals accomplishing nothing alone. If you don't own some company or a bunch of houses, and you're not a cop or a corrections officer, you're in the working class. We, the working class, built all of this shit. All of the houses, apartments, schools, roads, factories, cafes, and shops. Without us living in the community, the community would not exist. But almost all of us have people barking useless orders over us, with no recourse for true justice. I think we can take control of our lives and make everything better. We built all of this shit, but we didn't build it to be broke next to billionaires. We didn't build all of this shit to live in vans and tents. We didn't build all this shit so the military could blow up kids in Southwest Asia with flying robots. And we definitely didn't build all this shit to die in a climate change induced superstorm on our way to some fucked up warehouse job that we had to pee in a jar to get in the first place. Instead of a world of free housing, landlords take a high portion of our money simply because they are owners and already had enough money to buy a home. This is a backward situation wherein people who don't work steal money they don't need from people who do all the work. Capitalism is essentially the belief that since it could be difficult to address this kind of theft, we should just give up and let bribery rule our entire society, 
and the least corrupt people will somehow rise to the top through some method which is never fully explained. I think that's bullshit. I think all of our lives would be better if we didn't live in a system that glorified greed. I think all of us in our hearts know that we not only deserve better, but we can do better. What do we have to show for all these years that we've struggled? How long is this going to go on? Was it right that your ancestors struggled hard all their lives just to die broke? Do you want to struggle like this for the rest of your life just to be broke? Do you want the next generation to struggle like this for all of their lives just to still be fucking broke? The union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Capitalism tries to make us feel foolish and small. For not having a better attitude, for being houseless, for not being a self-starter, for not going to college, or if we did, for not studying the right degree. In short, for not working harder to build up other people's shit instead of our own. And that as a result, we deserve the treatment we get. But no one deserves to be treated like this. No one deserves to be poor. No one deserves to live without access to basic necessities. No one deserves to face bigotry. No one deserves to be arbitrarily ordered around and humiliated. No one deserves to be exposed to disease, or unsafe temperatures, or toxic chemicals, or predatory businesses, or uncompassionate shelters. No one deserves to live in this fucked up society. So, we have to change it. We aren't weak people being held down by the strong. We are strong people being held back by the weak. Part 10. What next? Our ultimate goal is total liberation and social revolution through economic democracy. Mass worker control of all workplaces, tenant control of housing, in short, community control over communities. We look forward to building a democratic and participatory planned economy capable of meaningfully responding to climate change by decolonizing so-called North America. This means workers firing all of the bosses and managers and pigs and landlords, closing the banks and stock markets, disallowing people to price gouge food, water, clothing, and housing. If the community controls the way these things are produced, then we can end the market-enforced scarcity, which keeps one in five children in the U.S. going to bed without enough food on the table, and where at this very moment, over 1.5 or 2 million children are houseless. We can and must leave this world of precarity behind. We want to see workers directly voting to determine their workplace's budget, operations, salaries, schedules, policies, hiring, firing, and discipline. We want to see no people without houses, and no houses without people. In short, we want, for the first time ever, to give everyone the right to control their own destiny. There is no reason to let these assholes control our lives. We have the power. All we have to do is love and respect ourselves enough to take back what already belongs to us. I came to organizing because I spent my whole life bailing on things and running away when they didn't suit me. Jobs, relationships, scenes, cities. Embarrassingly late, I realized I could never run far enough. If I wanted to live to see the stronger, kinder world, which stands tall in my dreams, then I had to turn around and fight. Beyond the information in this booklet, I don't know what needs to happen next. That's partially for you, the person reading this right now, to figure out. I don't know your life, your community, and there are many things about both which are totally unique. I don't know exactly what you need to get free, but I have absolutely no doubt that we will get free together. I promise you that in our lifetimes, we are going to build a world without fear. The fastest way to get to that world 
is by doing things which have never been done before. Please fight the system. There are other rebels out there. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. You have to go check out the amazing shirts up at feralthreads.square.site. All sales from these shirts are also donated to our comrades with the Black Flower Collective. Thank you. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee, who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash freerfighters. We would like to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more about their project, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever, thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity, as many activists are closing their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD socials. Join at collectiva.social and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Shehalish River Mutual Aid Network is hosting a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. The Communique is looking for artists and upcoming event submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. We would also like to say thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And of course, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. We the people are the ones who have the fight. We used to say, which side are you on?
See, before I draw the line, let me welcome you close To all the folks who knew Obama, so the people of hopes Gave the money to suckers, while well, our community's still poor Withdrew the troops, but started another war Colonizing, terrorizing, creating the oil crisis So they can make a kill on no food and gas prices Prisons is filling, they trying to lock up the future Militarized borders, and control of computers Want a stupid bump of music that ain't healthy for the shortest Privatizing schools and policemen in the hallways Can't be dormant, I'm a broken rock Riding the fence, riding the fence Too many people be riding the fence Yeah, you say you ready for war, but are you convinced? I'm not convinced If you're a rider, freedom fighter, crowd excited Then let's do this We can make one big united Middle finger to the U.S. Give me the bravest and the truest Fuck the hippest and the coolest We gon' spark this revolution And cross this off our to-do list Put your foot down if you look down on this criminal system Put your book down and get shook down like my niggas in prison Don't be condemning and condoning their actions in one sentence Make up your mind, choose your side Is you a patriot or a menace to society? So riot or sit by quietly But don't pull out your flag and try to say you gon' ride with me You flip-flopping like hip-hop, I don't get locked in that trick box Get got like big and pop, shit's got to stop I am the people, not the big, I repeat after Fred So please blow my brains out if I ever forget I'm with the independent thinkers I'm down with the movers and the shakers and the ex-handy drinkers The non-smokers, the health advocates, the non-voters The young bloods in the hood training like soldiers I'm on the side of the tracks with the hood gardens the little child that don't color inside the margins I don't ride the fence, I cultivate my strength Cause if it ain't about power, it don't make sense I've been down with Boogie Down since BDP some brown pride And black power make RBG A OG told me choose battles wisely In the struggle, don't forget your children and your wife If you don't see me on the podium preaching it Every day I hope my every action is teaching it Cause revolution is a process It's not a speech or a panel It's right off more than you can handle. Shots in Palestina Con todos los estudiantes Por educación gratuita I'm with workers uprising And the right to unionize We ain't crossed the border So you better legalize I'm with La Peña del Bronx I'm still with Vitor Toro Cause gentrification Is polluting my borough So bro never South Bronx forever Decolonize the block Make your neighborhood better I ain't down with the rich I'm more Richie Perez Don't talk to grand juries Or cooperate with feds I'm with students Doctors Janitors Teachers we need living wages, but they don't believe us. Monida, Barreto, Spofford, Hunts Point, my point, my hood, I love. We join forces, forming our deck. We ex taking over buildings, rebel Diaz for the children. Politics to sickness, streets express symptoms. Caught up with a quickness, big business pimps them. Scholars play the simple sin, fools play with wisdom. Who will stand and fight back? Who will play the victim? Trials and tribulations, ancient generations, stolen history and outsourced innovation. Battle Tower fell, tribes are at war. The battle story's not represented in the score. The game's fixed, most of the faces and names switch. Credit stolen for art, science, religion, language. Technology, philosophy, and what strangers. They paid in hatred for the knowledge of the ancients. Power in words, actions, good swords. Aim Panthers, brown berets, young lords. One sickness, one cure, one love, one blood, one world, but one war. 